The title of this panel is Arab-U.S. Relations Views from the Region. And um, I'd like to just start by uh, noting that it is often said that hindsight is 2020, with a popular and long-lasting lament, which is that the activities of the ISIS or Daesh today is the price the Middle East uh, region is paying for more than 50 years of wrong policies, including repression, corruption, bad governance, and so forth. These same voices still call for deep, meaningful changes in the region and reforms uh, and in order to get to the root of the problem that we're dealing with today. Uh, let's keep this in mind as we move forward and maybe we'll revisit it again. Uh, in the interest of time, let me simply recap quickly two points. One is that everyone, of course, is well aware of the complexities of the issues in the region today. The second is that the U.S. regional friendship, long-standing friendship, is in turmoil and possibly uh, irreparably uh, altered. So having made these points, let me quickly introduce. We are very fortunate to have five speakers at the podium, keen observers, each impressively authoritative on the Middle East and North Africa region. Today, Ms. Judith Kipper will be our first presenter. Ms. Kipper's biography is in the conference booklet. Suffice it to state that Judith is an internationally recognized Middle East specialist. She is currently director of Middle East programs at the Institute of World Affairs. Among her important contributions and accomplishments, Kipper established and until 20, 2007 led the Middle East uh, program forum at the Council on Foreign Relations, and that is where I first run into her. Judith has noted that unpredictable events in the region were inevitable, and we look forward to her expanding this point. Uh, the next speaker will be Dr. James Zogby, president of the Arab American Institute to my left here, which he founded in 1985 here in Washington, D.C. Uh, again, Dr. Zogby's full biography is in the booklet. Suffice it to state that Dr. Zogby is a prolific writer, including on a variety of issues impacting Arab-American communities in the United States. In addition, as managing director of Zogby Research Services, he and his team conduct important public opinion polling across the Arab world. He is author of a very well-regarded book, Arab Voices, published in 2010. Here, among other thoughts, perhaps uh, Dr. Zogby will blend his various experiences and research to offer a glimpse of the Arab-U.S. relations, of course, with an emphasis on regional views. Our third speaker, Dr. Christian Koch, is the director of the privately funded nonpartisan Gulf Research Center Foundation in Geneva, Switzerland. In the interest of time, please find his longer biography in the, in the, in the booklets as well. Dr. Koch, too, acknowledges the deep concern in the region about the direction of U.S. Uh, Arab policy, including the U.S.'s failure to listen properly to one's allies. We will be especially interested to hear Dr. Koch's views on the consequences of this breakdown in the relationship. Next, we will hear from Dr. Abdurrahman Fukara. His bio is in your conference booklet as well. As most of you know, Dr. Fukara is one of the prominent faces of Al Jazeera and heads the U.S. Bureau of that successful media organization. His weekly show, Min Washington, Washington, zeroes in on American politics and culture. Needless to say, the media plays a pivotal role in reporting and even interpreting every aspect of society's activities over and above reporting news as accurately as possible. The media shapes how people perceive the world and the media, including social media, determine which issues should be highlighted. Uh, we look forward to hearing from Dr. Fukara along these lines, including on the challenges such as censorship, self-censorship, and so forth, within the larger theme of this conference and this panel. Last but not least, we have Ms. Barbara Ferguson to the left as well. As a reporter, Ms. Ferguson has covered the Middle East for 25 years. 
She was an embedded war correspondent in Iraq with the Marine Corps. She now continues to write for Arab News, the English language daily published in Saudi Arabia. Her other professional activities are also in the booklet. Ms. Ferguson will serve as overall commentator on the presentations. Each distinguished speaker will have an opportunity to give a maximum of 10 minutes. Hopefully, we'll have time for question and answers and further discussions thereafter. Thank you very much. Thank you, Elizabeth, and thank you to the organizers and uh, other, other panelists. Um, I'm going to take a slightly different approach and uh, step back slightly to talk about U.S.-Arab relations, which of course have their ups and downs, uh, are strained from time to time, are very cozy other times, but in my view they are permanent. I think the uh, long uh, relationship that the United States has had uh, with Saudi Arabia is proof of that. We went through all kinds of crises, many wars, uh, oil embargoes, and uh, nevertheless the relationship has sustained itself. Uh, even with uh, differences. The United States and the Middle East are, are linked and uh, I think they will continue to be. So even when we have strained relations and lots of people we heard yesterday said, you know, we're going to be independent, we don't need the U.S., get out, etc. Okay, you know, we'd love to, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen. The Middle East is going through, the Arab countries are going through monumental historic change. And I admit freely, openly, and willingly that the mistaken U.S. invasion of Iraq uh, so deep stabilized the area and so disrupted what was already a very tentative status quo that it speeded up the change and it certainly uh, made it much more virulent. Had we not gone to uh, make the war in Iraq, we would have been out of Afghanistan 10 years ago, and it would be a very, very different picture. But the monumental historic change uh, that's taking place and uh, referred to as the Arab Spring and now has taken a more deadly turn, from my point of view, was inevitable uh, for a whole lot of reasons. The Arab world was thrust into the international community after the 1973 war uh, and the oil embargo, which created an incredible amount of wealth without work. It could no longer be a sleepy, quiet area. It was suddenly in the, in the eye of the storm of the entire world, and uh, everybody wanted to get a piece of the petrodollars, which was very, very disruptive. Uh, to traditional societies. Since the 1970s, the West and the international community have focused on energy security, the free flow of oil at reasonable prices. During that time, everybody, the U.S. included, supported dictators and monarchs because they were assured us of the free flow of oil at reasonable prices and they were willing to keep their people quiet at any price. Uh, the dictators were worse than the monarchs. The monarchs were much more benign than the dictators. We've seen that the dictators, uh, many of them have been kicked out already uh, when people stop being afraid of their governments. For the, for the region, decades of quiet from 1973 until the Arab Spring uh, were mistakenly interpreted by the region, by the international community, and by Washington as being quote-unquote stability, that unknown thing that we all yearn for, stability, whatever it means in whatever place. Uh, it was never stability. It was always quiet that was uh, brought, uh, that uh, was created by repression, oppression, depression, uh, and it was doomed uh, not to last, and we saw that it exploded. Some 15 years ago, some of you will remember, and it's well worth remembering, the UN Arab Development Reports, primarily researched and written by Arabs, uh, be beginning to describe the real situation in the region. And now I quote from that report. 
The reports paint a stark picture of an Arab world in virtual arrested development, even as the Arab world is at the crossroads of political, social, and economic issues that affect the entire planet, regimes entrench power at the expense of development. Income has declined in the last 20 years in the Arab uh, countries. That is second only to sub-Saharan Africa. In 2002, and the reports uh, were coming out and they've been doing them pretty much every year ever since, but nobody pays attention. 65 million Arabs were illiterate in 2002. It's not much better today. Two-thirds of those are women who are systematically uh, repressed almost more than any other region of the world. The 22 Arab countries have about the same population today as the United States, 300 million or a little bit more. Arab population has doubled in the last 20 years. 20 years ago, the population was 150 million. By 2020, which is a few years from now, uh, five years from now, the Arab population is expected to be 400 to 460 million people. Politically, the Arab world lags behind other regions, and I'm quoting, uh, politically the Arab world lags behind other regions in participation and good governance. This freedom deficit undermines human development in all areas. Human insecurity is what it's called, fear of government, no hope in the society, nobody cares about your uh, aspirations. Ironically, the Arab world in 1970, before petrodollars, was more industrialized in 1970 than it is today. 50 million jobs are needed by 2020 in the next five years. So, we're talking about U.S.-Arab relations. How should we and the Arabs deal with that reality. Right now, we're uh, uh, trying to cooperate to get ISIS. ISIS will hopefully be degraded and destroyed over a period of time. But what about the 60% in the countries of the Middle East that are under more or less the age of 20 to 30? In Saudi Arabia, 60% uh, are under the age of 18, 40% under the age of 13, approximately still seven children per woman. The population of the kingdom doubles every 20 years. I'm only using Saudi as an example. It's not much different in any other country. So you have recruits to ISIS now, to Al-Qaeda, to Nusra. Uh, the violent, the ex exceedingly violent, violent groups. We have to fight ISIS. That's urgent, immediate, and today's goal. But what are Arab governments going to do with the remaining youth bulge that is growing up in the same undeveloped atmosphere as they did the last 30 or 40 years? Decent education that prepares you to work and to think, civil society, so you feel like you belong to this country. Good education, civil society, some kind of participation, some kind of information about your government. Uh, none of these things have taken place. So how do we, the United States, the West, and the rest of the international community that have interests in the Middle East, like the Middle East, care about the Middle East, how are we going to work with Arab governments who have, which have refused categorically uh, since, let's say, petrodollars of 1974 to institute the kind of reforms that will create what we really know is stability. People who are not afraid of their government, who have an address for their grievances, who have a chance to dream. We know very, I come from LA, and we know very well in East LA, and it's true all over the world, Bad guys have one very clear uh, uh, characteristic. The number one characteristic of people who are prepared to do this random, hideous, heinous, savage violence is alienation. Alienation. They don't feel they belong uh, to anything. 
So when they join a violent group or a gang, they get a sense of belonging. Secondly, it gives them a purpose because they're indoctrinated. And secondly, uh, it gives them a sense of excitement, which they don't have in their ordinary lives, which are very, very dreary. So in U.S.-Arab relations, we have a tremendous amount of consultation, dialogue, and work to do on the development side at the same time that we're fighting ISIS and the other extremist groups and allowing some kind of political discourse to develop in these societies along with good education and civil society. Thank you. Feel free to send your questions up in writing, that is, anytime. Dr. Zogby, next. I'm going to speak on what Arabs are saying to us. Uh, as you know, you may know, we poll uh, rather extensively in the, in the Middle East and have been doing so now for about 14 years. Um, I'm actually going to urge you to go to our website, zogbyresearchservices.com, um, or aaiusa.org, and you can get a whole range of polling that we've been doing uh, from Egypt and Tunisia and the transformations that have taken place over the last several years, uh, which we've tracked in some cases almost monthly, uh, Iraq and Iran and how Arabs see Iran and how Iranians and Turks see Arabs. Uh, Israel, Palestine, and of course what our topic is today, and that is perceptions about the United States. Uh, given time constraints, I want to give you just a few bullet points um, about what Arabs are saying to us and what we need to hear. Now, the first question would be, what do Arabs want? Uh, it's something that has been prov provoking us and thinking, we've been thinking about it uh, since we began our polling. Um, and we've polled, therefore, um, political concerns um, and, and values uh, and, uh, and priorities now uh, for, for all these years. Um, I like to say this, that the prevalent American myth uh, about how to talk about the Arab world is that Arabs go to bed at night hating us, they wake up in the morning hating Israel, and they spend the day watching Al Jazeera, which makes them hate even more. That's the kind of notion that we have is that they're kind of, it's a society on some kind of need to hate to sort of fuel itself out of lethargy. Actually, uh, from our polling, we learned something quite different. They go to bed at night uh, thinking about their kids. They wake up in the morning thinking about their jobs. And when they watch television, they actually want to be entertained like everybody else. I have a great story. I was in Saudi Arabia during the uprising in Tunisia and the collapse of the government in Lebanon and people were flipping back and forth as, as they are wont to do between Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya getting different perspectives and debating heatedly and at one point the 18 year old son of one of the the gentlemen comes in the room and he says it's on and um, it was Arabs got talent and um, he switched over and they spent the next hour and a half watching that and debated as heatedly who should win as they were debating the developments in Tunisia. Um, Arabs are like anybody else. Uh, their top priority is close to home. It's family, it's, it's their job, it's their kids, uh, it's the health of their parents, it's what they're going to do when they get old. Uh, number one priority, and there are changes from country to country and from year to year in the, in the sort of the shifting order of things, but for the most part, it's the economy and jobs in almost every country. It's education and healthcare round out the top three. And in some countries, in particular Egypt, and to some also to a great extent Lebanon, um, and sometimes Jordan, the issues of corruption and nepotism will creep up into the, into the top four. The next question that we'd ask is, what do you want from us? What do you want from the United States? And the answer here is revealing because for the most part, they want nothing. Um, when they do want us, those countries that do want us, want us to build capacity. They, in other words, they want us to invest in their economies. They want to do partner with us to create jobs. They want help in building their educational institutions. And they want to improve their healthcare delivery systems. When they think about us, 
when they think about us, of course, they think about what we've done, the damage we've done to the region that has impacted their lives, most notably Palestine. In the most recent poll we did, when everybody here in America is saying, ah, Palestine's over, the Arabs got other things to worry about, number one top issue involving their understanding and relationship with the United States, absolute plurality in every country was Palestine. Even among Iraqis, the issue of Palestine was of preeminent in importance. Um, and it's interesting to me because um, President Obama in May of 2011 gave, I think, a very important speech at the State Department in which he absolutely got it right. He spoke about Arab Spring and about the Arab world today two years after his Cairo speech and he said, here's the challenge. He said, we did not create this Arab Spring. We cannot direct it and we cannot determine its outcome. All we can do is be of help when they need it. And the help he offered, the help he suggested, was capacity building. It was job creation. It was investment in infrastructure. It was creating jobs and improving lives as the best way to help promote a middle class that could sustain the development toward change. It was not dictating terms about politics because the problem is, is that America offers the region what it doesn't want from us and doesn't give it what it does want from us. They want us to send in people to train them in democracy to the same extent that we would have wanted Sweden to come over and help us with our health care system. Or if somebody said when we're having the handgun debate, you know, the Brits, they don't do handguns the way we do. Why don't we bring the British over to advise Congress on how to, and the answer would have been screams and yells and, and, and whatever, because we do not want people involved in our internal affairs. It's pretty much the same thing there. What he also added was that the second help that we could provide, the second most important thing we could provide, is a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And he proposed uh, the 67 borders with land swaps was the formula that he used. The problem was, was that Congress upended him on both fronts. They did not move forward on the budget to help build capacity in the Arab world. And of course, they invited Netanyahu to insult the president uh, a few days later uh, and pretty much put an end to the peace process at that point. Here's the problem. We do not listen. We do not listen to the Arab world. We do not pay attention to what they want. What we're offering them is what they don't want. And we're failing to recognize what they do want. And even when we do recognize what they do want, our political system is dysfunctional and we simply can't act. So what do they think of the United States? Well, it's complicated. Uh, Arabs actually like our culture and values. I remember we, there was a poll a few years back, 80% of Americans said that they believed that Arabs hated our culture and values. Well, actually, it's about two-thirds of Arabs like our culture and values. They like our people, they like our products, they respect our advances uh, in science and technology, and they respect our institutions. What they don't like is the fact that we don't apply our values to them. That our politics and our policies have taken a toll on their lives and on their trust. One interview, we, after we do the interviews, we sometimes do anecdotal interviews to just get a feel for what respondents are saying. And one guy said, you know, I went to school in Boston. I love the city. I love the people. And I love your country. And I love everything about your country. He said, I just don't think your country likes me. He said, I feel like a jilted lover. Um, in our most recent polling, what we have found is the following, that if you look across the region, and again, variations from country to country, but the overall markers are clear. Um, lowest ebb was 2006, the pit of the Gulf War, uh, of the Iraq War. Israel-Palestine was again in, uh, in shambles. George Bush had let the region down again. Uh, we climbed up again, Arab attitudes towards America climbed up again in 2008 after the election of Barack Obama. 2009, by the time of the Cairo speech, it was at a very high point. It plummeted again in 2010 and 2011. The levels in 2011 were almost equal to the low point in the Bush years. In 2012, with the second Obama administration, they went up again, rather to uh, the higher points than they were in 2008. They've dropped again in 2013, and in 2014, they're up just a notch, but pretty much within the margin of error of where they were in 2013. I dare say that the Arab world is a bit of exhaustion about the U.S. Um, hopes have been raised, hopes have been dashed, 
too many times. To be clear, there is little support, for example, for Bashar al-Assad, um, and barely a trace for ISIS. Substantial majorities, however, do not want American military involvement in the region. I, Arab governments want it, but Arab people do not. It's almost been like we've done this before, we've seen this play out, it doesn't play well, you'll leave us in the lurch, please don't come. They prefer, in the, what they tell us in the polls, is they prefer the U.S. to lead a negotiating effort to solve the conflict in Syria. They prefer a negotiated effort to the Iranian nuclear issue. They also prefer a negotiated settlement to the Arab-Israeli conflict, but they do not have confidence or trust that the U.S. is committed to it or will pull them off. Now, we weren't polling in the 1990s, so I can't compare where we are today with where we were then. But from the earliest poll we did 14 years ago, it was clear that we were in trouble. Um, the neglect and the hubris of the Bush administration only compounded it. The raised and dashed um, expectations of the Obama years have not helped. There remains, however, a residual goodwill. Um, but it is offset by a lack of trust and a confidence that we are serious about our relationship. In a real sense, Arabs feel that we do not care uh, about the people of the region, uh, their needs and their aspirations. The solution is simple. It's to listen. It's to pay attention. It's to actually show people that we do care in the policies that we promote. And then it's to act on those policies. Thank you. Next is Dr. Christian Koch. Thank you very much. And it's definitely a pleasure to be back. And I want to thank, of course, the National Council and John Duke Anthony for the invitation. Uh, the fact this is my second time here, so that you get invited back, I think, means you didn't mess up too bad the first time. And that's always nice to know. Um, a lot of the points, of course, uh, you know, coming in this late uh, to talk about U.S.-Arab relations, and I'll focus more specifically a little bit on U.S. Gulf relations. Uh, a lot of points have already been made, but I really want to make like three points, uh, uh, three main aspects to put them forward. Um, the first follows a little bit of what uh, Judith already sort of mentioned. This, there's a lot of talk about crisis, but I think we do need to put relations into their proper context and not necessarily overreact and say we are about to see a complete break in those relations. That leads to, to a second point, uh, and that is nevertheless, uh, definitely there are deep disappointments um, about the U.S. policy, um, both especially now the policy in the last decade, and, and more specifically also the policy direction uh, in the near future. So I think we do have uh, experienced a period now where a lot of trust has been lost and we're not necessarily going to recover all that trust very quickly. Uh, and that then leads into my third sort of point to say I think that the U.S. does need to get used to uh, a much more independent policy streak by the Arab Gulf states, by the GCC states, that there will be sort of at least a continuation of a search for alternatives not that that's necessarily going to lead anywhere right away, uh, but I think we are not looking necessarily at a break in the relationship, but we're looking at something that might be a little bit of a different kind of a relationship. Uh, and that's a re I think that's a realization that still has to sink in, especially in the U.S., of what kind of relationship we're talking about. I don't think it's necessarily negative. Uh, I think it has a lot of positive aspects to it as well. So let me just go briefly back. Uh, again, the first point, I think there are still many instances um, of cooperation that is around. Uh, we heard it yesterday, defense cooperation uh, on counterterrorism, uh, definitely two areas that the cooperation is very, very strong. Uh, we now have in place the U.S. GCC strategic dialogue that takes place. So we have it also at the more general, at the more uh, multilateral level. Um, I still feel that there's uh, many more American officials that come to the region and many more Gulf officials that come to Washington 
than could be the case for Europeans coming to the Gulf or for Asians coming to the Gulf. I think the points of contacts are still out there uh, in an incredibly wide scope. Uh, and of course, we mentioned as well yesterday, uh, you have the number of students you have studying here and the interchange that takes place at the people-to-people uh, -people level is still quite uh, extensive. Um, I think it's kind of normal, again, that we have ups and downs in the relationship. Uh, both sides have, have interests. The, those interests don't always are the same. There's certainly been a number of times in the past with differences of opinion, but still it's almost 70 years now since the meeting between uh, King Abdulaziz and President Roosevelt and still the relationship more or less is intact. So um, I think this is an important uh, fact to consider. I also think there are two other aspects that um, uh, limit sort of the possibility of a quick breakup. Uh, and one has been mentioned before, this is really the lack of alternatives at the moment. Uh, who's going to take on the role that the U.S. has played in the region? Uh, I don't see Russia doing it. Russia is looking much more on a global perspective in the competition uh, with the United States uh, much more broadly. I don't see Asian countries doing it. China is more concerned, of course, to maintain its economic growth rates uh, and expanding its business opportunities, but certainly doesn't want to expand on, on the political uh, security front. Uh, the EU, of course, we still see a hamstrung organization. Uh, we might have to see what comes out of uh, this new EU government now. We have a whole change in Brussels having taken place uh, with a new commission president, a new president of the council, a new foreign policy person coming in, a new parliament being elected. Uh, but I still don't expect that the EU is going to take on now suddenly a much more forceful role. Uh, so again, I don't see really any alternatives uh, sort of right there at the, uh, at the moment. Um, the other aspect really is a little bit more internal, and that is that I think also the GCC states have been much too complacent in the last decades to simply rely on the U.S., and they failed. They failed simply to build up their own capacity, whether to invest in proper institutions, into recruiting the right number of people into their governmental structures, whether to build on what really should be the basis of a strong foreign policy mechanism in place. Um, and I think that slowly is changing. Um, I can see it, for example, in the case of the United Arab Emirates. I think they've done some tremendous efforts here in building up policy planning unit in the Foreign, uh, foreign Affairs Ministry and trying to think a little bit more structured about what their process looked like. I see also an expansion of the diplomatic institutes in the region in terms of training their own people and bringing in more qualified personnel, but we, I think we're still at the beginning of this process, and that's going to take time. So again, I think this is another limitation that we should look out for. Um, okay, so at the moment we, we have a relationship that I think is not really in a deep crisis, um, but that being said, of course, there are many issues um, that have led to sort of a loss of trust between the two sides, and we've already heard yesterday a lot of times that one of the main reasons is the failure of the United States to listen to some of the advice that has been given uh, by its Arab allies. And I think here the, really the pivotal year definitely was um, 2003 and the decision to in, in invade uh, Iraq. I think it opened the eyes along, along a lot of uh, GCC officials to say we don't necessarily can assume that our interests are necessarily always going to be the same uh, and that there is a divergence there. And we have to also realize very quickly that uh, the decisions made in Washington can have quite deep and devastating consequences on the security of our own countries. And to simply just sit around and wait to see what those consequences are going to be is, is insufficient. So uh, it wasn't just the decision to invade Iraq, but it was also the really uh, terrible decisions that were made in the aftermath that added to the loss of trust and this realization that the GCC states also need to be a little bit more active on, on their own regard. And of course, what we've seen in the last decade is that one bad policy has simply followed on another. So we see the opening of, of Iraq to the dominance of Iran. We see the precipitous withdrawal of U.S. troops under the Obama administration. Um, and of course, the failure to take more forceful action in Syria 
And as Prince Turkey already mentioned yesterday, by failing to arm the moderates, we have ended up arming the extremists. Um, so this is, this is the situation where we see this, um, where the GCC states, I think, they simply feel that they're not really part of the decision-making process. And, not, and even then, they're not being listened to at all. So why should they necessarily carry all the burden of a mis U.S. misguided policy? Um, that trust is not going to be replaced very easily. Uh, and especially as the U.S. administration tries to give new assurances, really without the readiness to commit to a change in policies, I don't think we're going to see any kind of recovering of that trust in, in the near term. Uh, but having said that, I think this brings me then to the third point, and this is why we see all this more action-oriented, a little bit more independence by the GCC states on their foreign policy front. Um, and I think the U.S. very much has to get used to this fact. Uh, you know, you, the U.S. has called in the past for more burden-sharing, uh, but now they shouldn't be surprised when suddenly Qatar takes more independent foreign policy decisions. Would the UAE and Saudi Arabia have a different position on Egypt uh, than maybe Washington does? I think this is all uh, should have been expected, uh, at least. Um, so what we have at the moment, we have a fairly solid relationship, uh, which is supported again by the lack of alternatives um, and the lack of capacity on behalf of the GCC states. But we have a relationship that's moving to a different sort of, sort of relationship, where we're going down the road. Um, I think uh, Abdullah Sheji's assertion yesterday that we, the GCC states are being caught between abandonment and entrapment is a, really, a real possible development, and I think we need to take that more seriously. But at the same time, I think there are a number of steps that one can take. Um, I think the U.S., although Dr. Zabi already mentioned, uh, they're not going to listen to you necessarily, but I think, of course, they have to take a little bit more serious the views from the region. But I think, in addition, they should also really begin to support this more independent streak in the GCC, support in having building up more of their institutional processes, support them both at the bilateral and at the GCC level, uh, because in the past, the GCC has proven to be a valuable ally to the U.S., and I think their independence, uh, even if it's not always the same uh, as uh, U.S. policy might want, I think their independence is going to serve U.S. interests also in, in the, 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 the road down, the, the longer road down the way. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please send up your questions. We haven't seen them. Are there people to collect questions out there? Yeah, please. Thank you. Dr. Fukara, please come. Thank you very much, uh, National Council on uh, U.S.-Arab Relations, Dr. Anthony. Thank you for the invite. I don't have an awful lot to add. I know you guys have had uh, two uh, heavy days with uh, discussion and reflection. And I don't want to overburden you at the end of a busy day, so I'll make it short and sweet. But on the other hand, if you believe an Arab who says that he's going to make it short and sweet, you've got another thing coming. Uh, in all seriousness, I'm going to try and uh, make it uh, short and sweet. I, uh, just on the issue of what is wrong with U.S.-Arab uh, relations, I would probably sound much more sanguine today, 2014, than I did in 2010. Uh, even back then, I was very depressed by uh, the state of uh, uh, Arab-US relations, but I found many fountains of optimism even within that state of being depressed. Uh, and I'm really sorry to say that uh, standing here in 2014, um, I am much less uh, optimistic uh, now than I was back then. And, you know, to try to hark it back to a particular uh, event, uh, what the problem is, you could take it back to Iraq in 2003, and you would be absolutely justified, in my opinion, and you could take it uh, back 60 years. Uh, to the uh, beginning of the, the, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and you'd be absolutely uh, justified. Uh, I just happened to be 
uh, Arab and living in uh, the United States. And to me, uh, when I look at this issue, I, I instinctively find myself paddling back, not just 60 years, I find myself paddling back several centuries, uh, just to be uh, fair and square. The relationship between the Arab world and the United States is caught up in the same dynamics that the relationship between East and West has been caught up in uh, for several uh, 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 centuries. Uh, you could go back to the beginning of uh, uh, Islam, you could go back much further than that, as far back as, as, as you want. But I think it doesn't do it justice to really evaluate the real size of the problems in uh, U.S.-Arab relations to say that it only harks back to 2003 or it only harks back to uh, Israel-Palestine, although the issue of Israel-Palestine is obviously crucial in the uh, problems that have bedeviled uh, relations between the Arab world and the United States. And incidentally, I also happen, because there are people who say, well, in a high in a hypothetical situation, let's imagine Israel and Palestine has been solved. Would, would it follow automatically that relations between the Arab world and, and the United States would be better? I say, I don't know. I'm not even advocating solving it to improve relations between the Arab world and, and the United States. I'm saying I'm advocating solving it for, in it for its own right as an issue of justice, period. And if it follows later on that relations between the United States and the Arab world follow, fantastic. If it doesn't, at least you've addressed the one single issue that has been the engine of conflict throughout human history, and that is justice or lack thereof. Now, the issue of what are we hearing from the Arab world? Let me just say this as a journalist. What I'm hearing from the Arab world is America, what the hell are you doing? And I'm hearing that from two camps. I'm hearing that from the camp of those Arabs who think that the United States has stoked up change in the Arab world, um, in Egypt and elsewhere in the region. But I'm also hearing it from the other camp, which is the camp of those Arabs who want change and feel that the United States is not doing enough to help uh, bring change. And, you know, this uh, paradigm is very familiar. I know, I've lived in the U.S. long enough to know that this paradigm is very familiar to U.S. ears. They'll say America will be blamed no matter what. But that's what the region is saying. And when I, I notice I didn't say Obama, I said America. And then you narrow it down to Obama. And when you get to a situation where a journalist, you know, we journalists, we're not exactly renowned for saying, I don't know. But I feel that I am at that stage where I just cast a look over the region and I try to understand what's going on and where it's all going. And I say, the honest truth is, I don't know. If you asked me four years ago, I may have staked out some sort of uh, a prediction, now I don't know where the region is going and therefore I don't know where relations between the Arab world and the United States are, are going. People in the region, they look at President Barack Obama and as Jim said earlier, they went from a time when they heard a clear message from him, both at the State Department but also in his first speech as President uh, from Cairo University, saying, laying out his vision for how he saw things moving forward between the United States and the Arab world to a particular point in time, 2014, where the message is almost, almost completely indecipherable even to an Arab journalist living, living in Washington. We went from a president who for five years maintained his position that there is no way I'm going to drag American blood and treasure into another war in the Middle East to a president saying, I'm going to a war which my successor in 2016 will inherit. And this lack of uh, clarity, I'm not saying that it's intended by the Obama administration, maybe it's just a consequence of the process, but it's giving people in the region 
a lot of tough times trying to uh, read it. And I'll just end with where I started. I personally don't know where it's going, but I know that people in the region are saying, America, what the hell are you doing in 2014? Thank you. Ms. Barbara Ferguson will give us an overall commentary on the presentations. This is very interesting to do a quick synopsis, but the ideas that you all have expressed have been so interesting, I'm happy to do it. Uh, Judith Kipper spoke about the destabilization in Iraq and uh, how we would have been out of Afghanistan had we not invaded the country. Uh, she spoke about the oppression uh, versus stability in that region. Uh, the difficulties we've had as the U.S. government in choosing which way to go. Uh, very interesting as well to speak about the decline of income in the Arab countries and also the illiteracy, which is an issue that I'm very concerned about as well. Um, throughout the Arab world, and especially as a woman, to see two-thirds of women in these countries are becoming more and more illiterate. Uh, another big issue for all of you to think about who are doing business in that world, that 50 million jobs, according to Judith, are needed by 2020. Uh, Dr. Jim Zogby, his polls uh, were very interesting. I like the idea of the quarrel with the young child who came into the room and uh, all of uh, how they all started to watch uh, Arabs have talent or uh, Arabs got talent, I guess that's what it's called. <laughs> oh, the things that we import in the United States or export in the United States overseas. The misconceptions that he talked about uh, that we have in the United States for the Arab world, I thought was quite poignant. Um, also the questions that he asked as a pollster, what do you want from the U.S.? They don't want anything from us in regards to politics. They want us to help, their, help them to build their capacities, jobs, their infrastructures. Uh, Palestine reigns as a huge issue and uh, Good quote, I thought, from Dr. Zogby, U.S. offers the region what they don't want. Uh, they don't want us to get involved in internal affairs, something that we don't seem to be listening to, uh, perhaps, in the White House. And also, we fail to recognize what they want. When, uh, when he asked the question, what do they want, they like our cultures and our values. How many times as a journalist have I heard Arabs say to me, we love you American people, we just have issue with your government. Um, they, don't, uh, they don't want us to apply our values to them, exactly. Why don't we ever try to understand their values? Um, Arab folks don't want U.S. involvement in the region. That was something the Iraqi ambassador spoke to me about as well earlier. Uh, Dr. Christian Koch, I think, uh, with his interesting background, were you raised in Germany or just educated in Germany? In the very first years. In the very first years, and then you've lived in Switzerland, in the UAE, uh, and, the US. and the U.S., and one more country I'm missing. Nope, that's it. That's it? Okay. Uh, so he had a, a really interesting international perspective. Um, I think especially poignant was the fact that he spoke not of the break in U.S.-Arab relationships, but the it's going to be very different and we need to be prepared for that. Uh, I would like to have a few more specifics on that as well. Uh, in the lack of alternatives, it was good to know that the Arab world is not going to reach out to Russia, China or the EU, but I don't think we should take that for granted and uh, we need to work with them always as our partners. Um, Interesting point that uh, Dr. Koch brought up as well about the GCC states being too complacent. They've relied on the U.S. and not built up their own capacities. But this is slowly changing and they are becoming more independent. We need to work with them to develop their independence. Uh, again, he's, uh, to summarize, Dr. Koch said that the U.S.-Arab relationship is not in deep crisis, that there is a lack of trust and the U.S. fails to listen, which is a point that Dr. Zogby brought up as well. For Dr. Fukada, I thought it was very uh, unfortunate uh, about the depression, but also very well-founded. It is uh, difficult to be optimistic when talking about the situation of U.S. involvement in the Arab world. Uh, and what are we hearing? What he had to say uh, was another way of what Dr. Zogby told us, America, what in the hell are you doing? Um, we're not doing enough to bring change that they want in the region, and we do not know where the relations are going, Dr. Fukada said. 
he also faulted uh, President Obama for not giving a clear message to the Arab world, having promised so much, and now it's become very confusing. Uh, before I leave the podium, the Ambassador of Iraq asked me to ask you as panelists two questions. In regards to the U.S. administration, he wanted to know, is America prepared to fight ISIL for the, in the long run? And in regional perspective, he said, does he think, do you think that the Arabs have the stomach for soul searching in the region? And are they willing to admit mistakes that they've made in the region? And I'll leave that to the panelists to answer. Well, seeing that you have a plane to catch, Dr. Koch, would you like to come and answer this first question? You don't, no, no, okay, fine. Who'd like to discuss? Uh, the Iraq ambassador's uh, questions first. Huh. I think that the, uh, the American uh, commitment to fight ISIL is very serious. Uh, I think the real question is what are the Arabs prepared to do? Uh, we can't, we, we could send 100,000 troops there, smash ISIS. Is the problem going to go away? ISIS will pop up here and there, maybe it'll have another name, Al-Qaeda is there, Nusra is there, violent extremism is there. So how do the Arabs mobilize, A, to defend themselves militarily and really contribute, even if it's only financially and with some other uh, kinds of, of help? And secondly, it's up to the Arab countries. The U.S. cannot develop the Arab world. You have 60% of 300 million people under the age of 20. Every one of them is a prospective candidate for extremism. And I personally don't think it has to do that much with Islam, which they are simply using as a vehicle uh, without a different, more modern interpretation and reformation in Islam to uh, approach modernity as all other religions have had in the past. It's just that Islam has to do it in front of the world. So there's two things to do. Everybody get together and cooperate and fight ISIS and work with Turkey so that they behave a little bit more uh, strategically, shall we say. And secondly, to begin that process of development. I know somebody wanted to ask me, and I'll finish with this, about will democracy work and will it solve the problems? I don't think I ever said the word democracy. The Arab world is very, very, very far from democracy, but there are different ways to have participation so people feel they have a voice in their own society and civil society, because civil society produces tolerance and there is zero tolerance in the Arab world, and that's all part of development. We've gone through it, every other country in the world's gone through it, and the Arabs now are gonna to have to face the dilemma of how to give people, young people, the youth bulge, a stake in their own societies. Can I, uh, can, can, I, can, I, I can I come in a second? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Judith, I'm sorry. I. I uh, I, I don't want to be disagreeable, but I, I must disagree. Um, I, I think that the statements are uh, a bit over the top. Um, number one, the 60 million uh, children under whatever are not all. I, I, the, the issue is there is there are specific causes for why this movement has come into being, um, and the causes are as um, as disparate as uh, the, the tumultuous mess that we left Iraq, uh, the horrific dislocation and conflict and bloodshed that has become Syria. But it is also alienation in Europe. It is also alienation in other countries around the world where Muslims have traveled and gone to settle and found themselves uh, permanent outsiders. Um, there are issues here, and and you know when when a, a young uh, African American guy gets out of prison uh, and is recruited because he too is alienated and dislocated and feels a sense of of uh, of, of of frustration, um, the causes of this extremism are no different than the causes of extremism a generation ago, which had different names and different language, um, and I can't put it all on Arab countries, and in particular. The countries that are the, 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 the countries that are earning the most money 
uh, also happen to be the countries that actually are the, at least today, the most stable um, and are doing pretty well, thank you. Um, and actually uh, dealing with issues um, within their midst and uh, it's, it's the, it's, it's Egypt and it's Libya and it's Tunisia um, and it's Syria uh, and Yemen that had the biggest problems and I think actually Tunisia is doing quite well, thank you. It's, it's moving fairly, fairly well and I think Egypt is going through a very difficult situation which troubles me deeply. Um, but um, the, the, the two big messes are the, the Libya and, and, and Syria, and those have both happen to be ones that we got ourselves into. Um, and I'm going to disagree with those who think that we made the mistake of not getting into Syria soon enough. I, I think the fact is, is that you know, the, these revolutions that occur in societies are um, you either win them or you don't. Other people can't win them for you. Um, and, and, you know, the, the Libya, the, the situation in Libya was not ripe for uh, an alternative system of governance to come up from within to take over. And frankly, the, the U.S. was not going to become an occupation army in Libya to stabilize the situation until a new government came. We've already tried that twice. And frankly, it's not just we don't listen, we don't understand. And so d don't ask the U.S. to do what it is not capable of doing. So your initial question is, are we going to in this fight for the long haul? I really don't know. And I'll tell you one thing. I think that the White House may be committed to it. I think there are those generals who may be committed to it. I'm not convinced American public opinion is committed to it and is prepared for it. And numbers may be 52 now, whereas they were 30 a, a month ago. Americans start dying, they'll drop down to 30 again, and political pressure will be such that we'll be forced to withdraw. And I think the president knew that, which is why he hesitated. The question is, you cannot, these wars are not sustainable in a democracy unless there's public support. There is not public support for another. Americans are war-weary and war-wary. They don't want to do it again. Bush led us into two failed wars, cost us two to three trillion dollars and six to seven thousand lives. They're not going to do it again. We probably made the mistake of exhausting our capital, political, military, human, and, 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 and treasure, in two wars we couldn't win. This might be one we could, but frankly, no one's ready for it. So I, I'm going to let it go there. Thank you. So as you heard, very complex, very confounding, no clear answers, and, but yet we want to get to some other of the panelists to answer. Yes. I just wanted to say that I, I, I reside somewhere in the middle mm -hmm. between what Judith said and what Jim said on certain issues. I mean, first of all, the issue of tolerance. I think, and I know something about this because I'm a journalist, I think we have to be very careful when we use certain words in certain environments that may not necessarily know much about the Arab world. If you're like Judith or, or me or who know the Arab world, you may be. But otherwise, I think we have to be very careful. I, when I go home, I'm from Morocco. When I go to Morocco or to Tunisia or to other parts of the Middle East, you know, the issue of there is no tolerance in, in the Arab world, that just doesn't resonate with me. I know Almost everyone I meet when I go to the Arab world is tolerant. And not just in the present, there is a long tradition of tolerance among groups and tolerance among each other. Where the, that picture becomes jarry is when you begin to talk about politics. Yes, when you talk about politics, what we are seeing in uh, Libya, what we are seeing in places such as Syria, maybe attests to the fact that there is something to be built which is political tolerance. By the way, I was in uh, Iceland uh, a couple of uh, years ago and I was in a cab and I was being flippant in the conversation with the cab driver and I said to him, so apart from Nokia, what else have you produced as a country? And you know, cool, calm and collected, he looked at me back in his rearview mirror and he said, compromise. And I said, what does that mean? He said, we had a civil war in the 1920s and we came to the conclusion that we either live together or we perish together. So our best national product is compromise, and that remains so. But when you're talking about society at large, 
The Arab world has always been and continues to be a place of great tolerance and of great kindness. And by the way, I find a great resonance of that in this country. You know, socially, the, the people are, are, are very hospitable, very generous, um, very tolerant. But look what you hear when you come closer to the midterm elections, the filth. <laughs> The political filth that comes out, that politics drives out of people, the Arab world is no different in, in that sense. The, 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 uh, the other thing that um, I uh, wanted to, uh, uh, to add is that in terms of what have we learned from this, from all this, are we distant from, as Judith said, are we as distant, as she said, from democracy? Are we as Arabs, are we that distant? But the sad reality is that, yes, in 2014, we are. But in 2011, we weren't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, the responsibility of having strayed so far in three years from where we were in 2011 is quite frankly, for me, it's a shared responsibility between the Arabs themselves and the Americans. Why the Arabs? Because take what happened in Egypt. You know, the, 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 the icon in, back in 2011 of change happening in the Arab world. You had young people who organized and dragged other segments of society with them. They basically toppled a dictator who had ruled them for 40 years. And then he said, I'm stepping down. And we all made the same mistake. He said, I'm stepping down, but we didn't hear the second part of the sentence, which is, I'm passing on the baton to the armed forces. And the Egyptians celebrated and Arabs celebrated everywhere. And that's the, first, that's the part of the responsibility that the Arabs made. But this government, the, the, this administration, also had its share of responsibility because to this day, as a journalist, I'm not aware if the Obama administration has had a comprehensive re review of its foreign policy in places, crucial places such as Egypt. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I say that the responsibility is shared. I always say this, in a marriage of whatever shape or form, it always, the problem is never from one side. It's always, it always takes two to tango. But what makes this uniquely different is that it's a serious power relationship. It's a part of the world that has been under power subjugation of one kind or another for a long time. And it's very difficult to come to terms with that in such a, a short period of time. And I'm not saying, when I say such a short period of time, I'm not saying that I'm optimistic about the future. I'm just making a statement of fact. Very strong observations. Um, just to try and get to one or two of the questions from the floor, um, I think I'll direct this to Dr. Koch. Uh, representatives of GCC states have generally classified the U.S.-GCC relationships as faltering, but American voices have mostly claimed that the relationship remains strong. What has produced this disparity, and how can we get onto the same, on the same page? Well, I think what's produced uh, the disparity has certainly been uh, the concerns about, uh, from the region itself, about where the U.S. policy is going. Uh, not just based on the, the mistakes that we've seen in the last 10 years and, and, and uh, the consequences that now can be seen uh, as, as the region is, is, is imploding uh, on many fronts, uh, but on also uh, in terms of what the direction is on the next 10 years, because you, uh, you, know, you hear the instances of the pivot to Asia, you see the U.S. Uh, on, in terms of its energy independence and, and, and shale oil, uh, you see the, the, the war weariness and the, the reluctance to commit uh, uh, military resources uh, at certain times, and I think that combination has produced this uh, uh, reluctance in the region and asking where is U.S. Uh, policy headed. Uh, so I think that's where the concern comes from in the region, not really understanding or re not really fully recognizing uh, what the outlook is. Thank you, Dr. Koch. Um, there is one question from the floor here that um, on a country that we didn't visit during these, uh, present, this, uh, this panel's presentation, but it regards Yemen. Um, the question, and anyone can please help answer, how do you view the future of Yemen under the 
current civil religious conflict with the Houthis. What could be the recommendation to help overcome this shaky period of time from the local and international level? Mm. Um, who would like to address uh, Yemen? I mean, I can, I can comment this briefly. I think one of the, 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 the mistakes that has been made in, in, in Yemen uh, from the GCC side is that they put forward the initiative uh, uh, to have the transfer of power from Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, but then didn't really follow up on that afterwards to see how to take this initiative forward. Uh, and then to deal with, uh, you know, you still left a role uh, for the former president inside the country, uh, and you sort of left developments on their own afterwards. And that has created now the situation that we have at the moment, uh, uh, that you have many different forces, but not a clear strategy of how to deal with them. So I think one thing that has to happen is even the GCC needs to sit back and needs to decide on making an initiative number two mm -hmm. uh, for Yemen that uh, looks at the developments of the past uh, few years uh, and then tries to steer a more clear course forward as far as the the role of the GCC is concerned. Can, can I be t totally inappropriate right now? Um, the, the, do you ever remember the Seinfeld episode where George Costanza gets fired, but he keeps coming back to work? Abdullah Ali Saleh reminded me of Costanza a couple times. I, I'd say, if I were the, the then President Hadi, I'd say, are you still here? I mean, because he kept hanging around. Okay, sorry. Quite an influence. <laughs> I think we're clearly out of time at this point. I'm sorry for, the, for those who passed out uh, questions. We couldn't get to them. I think the panelists have done an amazing job blending old problems with new problems, uh, solutions, observations. So uh, please help me in uh, uh, thanking them. Give them a round of applause. <laughs>